Welcome to the Billions of Atoms podcast. My name is Dino. Billions of Atoms is all about our own personal experience with meaning and purpose in life and what we have done in various stages of our life to find meaning and purpose. This is episode four of the Billions of Atoms podcast. I grew up in Western Queensland where the singer John Williamson sang about red dust and hawks circling around pink and white clouds billowing from chimney stacks above the world's largest copper, lead and silver mine. Mount Isa is the traditional land of the Kalkadoon people. It's a place so remote that the Kalkadoon's first encounter with Europeans wasn't until the 1860s, almost 100 years after the settlement of the British in Australia. And the mine only started 70 years after that first encounter. The Isa is 1,000 kilometres from the nearest major town, positioned above the Tropic of Capricorn and just on the edge of the Northern Territory border. Summer temperatures climb to over 42 degrees Celsius and while winter can be cold, the Mount Isa, as I remember it, is a hot furnace. A mining town ringed by a bowl-shaped valley, as if paying tribute to the glowing cauldrons of lava that would emerge from the copper smelter each night. The valley is lined by red and jagged, rocky, spinifex-covered hills that have been forged and hardened by blistering hot sunshine over thousands of years. The Isa was a tough town, full of tough people, where the men were men and the women were proud of it, as my grandmother used to say. This was in the 1970s, and Mount Isa Mines was one of the largest mining companies in the world, with Mount Isa being the flagship for global operations. Mount Isa also ho- hosted one of the largest rodeos in the world, the Isa Rodeo, immortalised in song by Slim Dusty. Town full of cowboys and miners, with a pub on every corner, there was nothing cosmopolitan about the Isa in the 70s. And respect was earned through how tough you were, or whether you could fight. It was all we knew. Me, the youngest at that stage, as my sister had yet to be born, my twin brother Darren, and Ron, our older brother. Our only experiences outside of the Isa were on weekends where Dad would bundle us all in the car late on a Friday afternoon for a camping trip to a local waterhole or river. None of us wanted to go. The ominous cooler of beer being loaded into the car created an acute anxiousness and foretold of the horrors we all knew were coming. The Isa is an isolated, murderously hot and breathtakingly beautiful environment. It is about as remote as any place on earth, and even more so once you venture outside of town into some of the most stunning natural gorges and permanent waterholes you're ever likely to see. It was a ritual of mum, me, Darren and Ron all nervously getting into the car and heading away from town, staring across at the massive illuminated copper lead silver mine sitting atop the ranges that frame one side of the valley, fearfully watching as the bright lights of the mine, as bright as any skyline on any international major city, and watching the smokestacks grow smaller and smaller as we drive off into the darkness of the rocky desert ranges. We stare back into the darkness until the entire mine becomes just a distant glow of orange, reflecting off the atmosphere above the town, 
until all we see is blackness on the horizon and a sky filled with the entire universe above us. Going along with his charade of taking the kids to the bush, this filled us with dread, fear and anxiety, but we dared not show it. We played along and answered his questions, and we passed beer from the cooler to him as he ordered, while he navigated through rocky, washed-out roads, winding up and around jagged hills through dry creek beds and around boulders. Leaving those lights behind, we knew that we were leaving safety. We knew that no matter how much we cried or how loud we screamed, further away from those lights we got, we all knew the further away from help we were and the harder escape would be. My father was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He was afflicted with every stereotype that that conflict carried. He was an alcoholic. He was sadistically violent and callously abusive to us all. My earliest memories as a child are that of being fearful, of feeling deeply afraid that eventually this man would kill one of us. So moving on. In our previous episode, we had planned to talk about hate considering the Cassius Turvey murder and explore what motivates people to hatred to such a level of violence. We decided instead of talking around this issue, we would address it directly and honour Cassius with his own episode. So in this episode, I wanted to explore this concept of hatred further and open up the concept into more broader areas around the psychology of hatred. Human beings are hardwired for connection. We yearn for connection. We crave being part of a tribe. We crave being part of a community. Our hypothesis is that we share this planet with every living being. We share the building blocks of our being with the world around us. We are inseparable. We are impermanent and we are one with everything. So why is it that hatred is so pervasive in our society? What drives hate? What causes people to hate specific groups based on ethnicity, religion or sexuality? We believe this omnipresent inherited hatred has created for many a world that is unjust, that creates a lack of opportunity and divisiveness that only benefits the few. From hatred, we justify wars we demonize entire countries, we isolate individuals from the world, we make lifestyle choices an object of shame, we cause people to feel abnormal or evil. We use hate to mobilize armies and can overlook any collateral damage caused by the instruments we use to express our hatred. There are studies into hatred. They investigate hatred from a sociological, social justice and communications perspective. But surprisingly, hate is under-researched when it comes to psychology. For the purposes of the discussion, we are examining hatred in the context of discriminatory behaviours and victimisation of people on the basis of nationality, race, sexual orientation and gender with a subsequent dehumanisation of these groups. Hate is different to anger. We all get angry and anger is an important part of our psychological well-being, provided it can be controlled and it serves the purpose of an emotional release without violence against others. 
Research suggests that anger and hate are characterized by how we assess the motivations and intentions of the circumstances. When we get angry, we are directing our anger to a situation or a target, and the anger is a result of us feeling that the circumstances, the individual or situation can be influenced or changed. So, for example, you may drive a car and experience frustration at how the slow, how slow the traffic is or people cutting you off. So you get angry at other drivers or at the lines of cars slowly creeping forward ahead of you. The emotion generally lasts for a brief period of time and passes once the situation has moved to where you feel less powerless or more in control even to the point where you may have been raging about the traffic, but once things start to move, you give the driver of the car causing the traffic jam an acknowledging wave as you pass by. You see that his car is broken down, you can relate to the situation, and you can see that this was not intentional or malicious to make you late. So while we have been furiously angry at the situation, we do not carry that hatred towards the individual because we feel the person was not intentional in their actions. Anger, contempt, disgust, humiliation, revenge feelings and hate can all be elicited in reaction to a similar event, especially when another's actions is perceived as negative, intentional, immoral or evil. While hate can appear similar to other negative emotions, especially anger, Hate develops when we assume that mistreatment or humiliation of someone has been deliberate. That's the defining point. It is the intention that we perceive the group to be projecting. It is said that hate is distinguished by the processes we use to assess the situation. And if we perceive the behaviours to be so entrenched in that group that they exist persistently, outside of any specific actions they may take to modify the behaviours, we perceive the group is incapable of change and the behaviours are maliciously directed at us or someone else. With hate, we lose sight of specific behaviour and actions and regardless of any changes in behaviour or actions, we continue to feel hatred. Our hatred is directed towards the innate nature, motives and characteristics of the group and are not diminished by any new evidence that we may have misjudged them. The best example may be homophobic hatred, the hatred towards members of the LGBTQI is often irrational. There is very little evidence that LGBTQI people are a threat to anyone. They are not intentionally setting out to offend or harm anyone. They are not maliciously hurting anybody. But the levels of of hatred directed at this community over the years has been quite public and in some cases violent. This hatred is not directed at any individuals but the characteristics of the group. The hatred is directed at the sexuality, not the individuals. So any actions an individual may take that disproves the assessment will have no effect over the hatred because the sexuality is the target not the individual. Aristotle put it succinctly when he said, anger is always concerned with individuals, where hatred is directed also against classes. We all hate 
any thief and any informer. Moreover, anger can be cured by time, but hatred cannot. The one aims at giving pain to its object, the other at doing harm. The angry man wants his victim to feel. The hater does not mind whether they feel or not. The reasoning for this is the nature of hate. Hate is based on generalizations regarding actions and features of a person. The origins of the hateful conduct become less important over time and the character of the person or group becomes the sole reason for the hate. Generalizing characteristics to members of a group further allows us to be superficial in our justification of hate. The cursory transition of hatred from the individual's level to a group level makes it a vital agent in political or religious settings and allows an easily communicated and contagious opinion to spread. A characteristic of the development of hatred is a feeling of being powerless or a lack of control and therefore this is often used in conjunction with any specific traits of the target of hate to further reinforce the hatred. Consider the AIDS epidemic being associated with gay men as an example of this or the war on terror being associated with Muslims. Associating hate targets with danger or being unpredictable and malicious reinforce the hatred. It's a powerful tool well used in geopolitical and religious propaganda. Often, even if it defies logic, it becomes a contagion. A key differentiator in hatred from other negative emotions, such as anger, is our motivational goals. For example, with anger, the motive to change another person by attacking, confronting or criticizing. Hatred evokes the desire to ultimately eliminate or destroy the object of hate, either mentally through humiliation, socially through excluding them or physically through harming them. Hatred is an emotion that requires time, but once entrenched, it defies any logical reasoning. Hatred is a state of mind more than emotion. And this mindset can occur whether we have any personal interaction with the target or not. We may hate the Chinese without ever having visited China. We may judge China's record in human rights with no evidence and choose to ignore the human rights violations of another nation where there is no dispute to the atrocities committed. This occurs with indifference. We cannot love or hate persons we are indifferent to. It is interesting that indifference can cause us to ignore completely immoral acts and feel no negative emotions such as mass bombings of the Middle East countries but be outraged and angered by a biologically born male choosing to identify as a woman. Hate spreads among groups more effectively with intense emotional experiences, close family members and friends bonding over a shared hatred and inspiring generational hatred is a common example. Often generations of hate have evolved without any real logical causative reasoning for the hate. It has simply been handed down through the generations over the kitchen table conversations. A lack of personal interactions with the targets of hate diminishes any chance for empathy or developing a change in perspective. We cannot ignore the most dire consequences of hate, both on the victims and the perpetrators, and that is hate crimes. Hate crime has been a part of society for centuries. A feature of hate crimes is that the victims generally have not done anything specific. They are terrorised for who they are, not what they have done. 
there are four types of hate crimes that are being identified and are based on the perpetrator's motivations. They are for the thrill, defense, fear and anger, uh, retaliation and for the mission. Thrill seeking is mostly committed by groups of teenagers. Anger and fear or defense. This type of crime is mostly committed by individuals who feel threatened by the target. For example, gay hate crime committed by straight males who have fears about their own sexuality and sexual desires. Retaliation hate crime involves actual hate and often plays out as part of an act of revenge against previous hate crimes or terrorist attacks. For example, the situation in Palestine may be uh, where there's this ongoing cycle of hate that seems impossible to overcome because it's so entrenched and so generationally part of the fabric, that area. And then the mission, which is less frequently and generally based on moral ideologies where there is a dehumanization of the hate target. The internet and the use of social media have been used by all levels of society in spreading hate. Hate groups and spreading hate by political, religious and community groups can mobilize and inspire large groups of people to follow blindly. Hatred is used as an effective, simple political tool by politicians now more than ever. It has more permanence than anger or fear and requires no in-depth analysis or prosecution of ideas. Hate is heavily employed by the mainstream media and even in advertising due to the simplicity of the delivery and the ease of messaging. It plays to prejudices, and is relatable for audiences who have been fed a generational message of hate. The reasons we hate are mostly illogical and unfounded based on fear of the other, fear of ourselves or our fear of our moral fragility based on our own standards, lack of self-compassion or it fills a void. So like everyone who has lived a full life, I think I have numerous reasons to hate, whether it's my father, my government, my ex-wife or another country. But I try my very best to recognize the symptoms of hate and I work every day against these prejudices, not so much for the benefit of others, but more so for the benefit of my own life. I believe that when you allow hatred into your life, you erode opportunity. You take away potential enjoyment and you invite into your life a mental bias that skews your perception of reality. I believe that hatred is a complete mental fabrication, often based on very little logical or of experiential evidence. It is often inherited and a reflection of others' opinions. While not immune to this, I do work to identify my prejudices and where possibly simply let go of hatred. Sometimes this takes time and sometimes it is prevented or I can prevent it by identifying early the potential biases and reframing my thoughts on the matter. Hatred has to be learned and we are all born with the capacity for aggression as well as compassion. We must make a mindful choice to choose compassion and overcoming hate through education. We have created a world where competition rules and individualism is aspirational. It has isolated us more than ever in human history. Where once we could not survive without a community, now we are all competing for resources and the world is fractured and contaminated by inherited hatred. For me, hatred, especially unfounded hatred based on little evidence or groupthink, 
is too great of a price to pay in terms of loss of enjoyment and connection to the world we live in and others we share the world with. Regardless of race, nationality, sexuality or gender, connection with others is my priority in my life and wanting to have as much opportunity to, to explore what we have in this world as possible. I recognize that compassion kills hatred and often hatred is an expression or projection where we have a lack of compassion, we lack connection, not only with our fellow man, but also with reality. I value my privacy and I'm not really an advocate for celebrity culture, which is why we create a certain amount of anonymity around the work we do. It is less important for us to put our names in lights or our faces on the screen than it is for us to share our message of connection. However, to build some context and to take you through the journey of growth and strategies I've used to overcome the challenges of my life, I want to start each episode with a story from my own experiences. I hope that by sharing these stories it may provide comfort to someone who may have had similar experiences or simply help you to understand why this Billions of Atoms project is so important to me. These days I live mostly in the present. I spend very little time reflecting or contemplating the past. It has very little relevance to who I am today. Yes, it has shaped me, but it doesn't define me. I hope by me sharing some of my life with you, I can provide someone with inspiration, with comfort and connection, or simply to entertain. So I do hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Billions of Atoms podcast. Remember, I am part of you, you are part of me, and we are part of everyone and everything.